and welcome to Axioms of Liberty, where we dive deep into the most philosophical thinkers of our era to help you build a better foundation to understand your world. And we shall continue with chapter 22 of the Voluntarist Handbook, and it's titled, The Case for Libertarian Anarchism, Responses to 10 Objections. I want to talk about some of the main objections that I have been given to libertarian anarchism and my attempts to answer them. But before I start giving objections and trying to answer them, there's no point in trying to answer objections to a view unless you have given some positive reason to hold the view in the first place. So I just want to say briefly what I think the positive case is for it before going on to defend it against the objections. The Case for Libertarian Anarchism Problems with Forced Monopoly Thinking about it this way, what's wrong with the shoe monopoly? Suppose that I and my gang are the only ones that are legally allowed to manufacture and sell shoes. My gang and anyone else that I authorize, but nobody else. What's wrong with it? Well, first of all, from a moral point of view, the question is, why us? What's so special about us? Now in this case, because I've chosen me, it is more plausible that I ought to have that kind of monopoly. So maybe I should pick a different example, but still, you might wonder, where do I and my gang get off claiming this right to make and sell something that no one else has the right to make and sell, to provide a good or service no one else has the right to provide? At least as far as you know, I'm just another mortal human being, just like you, more or less. So, from a moral standpoint, I have no more right to do it than anyone else. Then, of course, from a pragmatic, consequentialist standpoint, well, first of all, what is the likely result of my and my gang having a monopoly on shoes? Well, first of all, there are incentive problems. If I'm the only one who has the right to make and sell shoes, you're probably not going to get the shoes from me very cheaply. I can charge as much as I want as long as I don't charge so much that you just can't afford them at all or you decide you're happier just not having shoes. But as long as you're willing and able, I'll charge the highest price that I can get out of you because you've got no competition. You've got nowhere else to go. You also probably shouldn't expect the shoes to be of particularly high quality because, after all, as long as they're barely serviceable and you still prefer them to going barefoot, then you have to buy them from me. In addition to the likelihood that shoes are going to be expensive and not very good, there's also the fact that my ability to have only one person who makes and sells shoes gives me a certain leverage over you. Suppose that I just don't like you. Suppose you've offended me in some way. Well, maybe you just don't get to have shoes for a while. So there's also this abuse of power issue. But it's just not the incentive problem. Because, after all, suppose that I'm a perfect saint and I will make the best shoes I possibly can for you and I'll charge the lowest price I can possibly charge and I won't abuse my power at all whatsoever. Suppose I'm utterly trustworthy. I'm a prince among men, not in the Machiavelli sense. There's still a single problem, which is, how do I know exactly that I'm doing the best job I can with these shoes? After all, 
there's no competition. I guess I could poll people to try to find out what kind of shoes they seem to want, but there are lots of different ways I can make shoes. Some of them are more expensive and others are less expensive. How do I know, given that there's no market and there's really not much I can do in the way of profit and loss accounting, I just have to guess. So even if I'm doing my best, the quantity I can make, the quality I make may not be the best suited to satisfy people's preferences and I have a hard time finding these things out. Government is a forced monopoly. So those are all reasons not to have a monopoly on the making and selling of shoes. Now, at least, it seems as though those are all good reasons for anyone not to have a monopoly in the provisions of services of adjudicating disputes, protecting rights, and all the things that are involved in what you might broadly call the enterprise of law. First of all, there's a moral question. Why does one gang of people get the right to be the only ones in a given territory who can offer certain kinds of legal services or enforce certain kinds of things? And then there are these economic questions. What are the incentives going to be? Once again, it's a monopoly. It seems likely that with a captive customer base, they're going to charge higher prices than they otherwise would and offer a lower quality. There might even be the occasional abuse of power. And then, even if you manage to avoid all those problems and you get all the saintly types into government, there's still the problem of how do you know the particular way of providing the legal services? the particular mix of legal services they're trying to offer, and the particular ways they do it. Are they really the best ones? They just try to figure out what will work. Since there's no competition, they don't have much of a way of knowing whether what they're doing is the most successful thing that they actually could be. So the purpose of those considerations is put the burden of proof on the opponent. So this is the point then, when the opponent of competition in legal services has to raise some objections. 10 Objections to Libertarian Anarchism 1. Government is not a coercive monopoly Now, one objection that sometimes raised isn't so much an objection to anarchism as an objection to the moral argument for anarchism. Well, look, it's not really a coercive monopoly. It's not as though people haven't consented to this because there's a certain sense in which people have consented to the existing system by living within the borders of a particular territory, by accepting the benefits of the government affairs, and so forth. They have, in effect, consented. Just as if you walk into a restaurant and sit down and say, I'll have a steak, you don't have to explicitly mention that you are green to pay for it. It's just sort of understood. By sitting down in the restaurant and asking for steak, you are agreeing to pay for it. Likewise, the argument goes, if you sit down in the territory of this given state and you accept benefits of police protection or something, then you've implicitly agreed to abide by its requirements. Now notice that even if this argument works, it doesn't settle the pragmatic question of whether this is the best working system. But I think there is something dubious about this argument. 
it's certainly true that if I go onto someone else's property, then it seems like there's an expectation that as long as I am on their property, I have to do what they say. I have to follow their rules. If I don't want to follow their rules, then I have to leave. So I invite you over to my house. And when you come in, I say, you have to wear this funny hat. And you say, what's this? And I say, well, that's the way it works in my house. Everyone has to wear the funny hat. Those are my rules. Well, you can't say, I won't wear the hat, but I'm staying anyway. These are my rules. They may be dumb rules, but I can do it. Now suppose that you're at home having dinner, and I'm your next door neighbor, and I come and knock on your door. You open the door, and I come in and say, you have to wear the funny hat, and you say, why is this? And I say, well, you moved in next door to me, didn't you? By doing that, you sort of agreed. And you say, well, wait a second, when did I agree to this? I think that the person who makes this argument is already assuming that the government has some legitimate jurisdiction over this territory. And then they say, well, now, anyone who is in the territory is therefore agreeing to the prevailing rules. But they're assuming the very thing they're trying to prove, namely, that this jurisdiction over the territory is legitimate. If it's not, then the government is just one more group of people living in this broad general geographical territory, but I've got my property, and exactly what their arrangements are I don't know, but here I am in my property and they don't own it. At least they haven't given me any argument that they do, and so in fact, I am living in this country means I am living in a certain geographical region that they have certain pretensions over. But the question is whether or not these pragmatic pretensions are legitimate. You can't assume it is a means of proving it. Another thing is, one of the problems with these implicit social contract arguments is that it's not clear what the contract even is. In the case of ordering food in a restaurant, everyone pretty much knows what the contract is. So you could run an implicit consent argument there. But no one would suggest that you could buy a house the same way. There are all these rules and things like that. When it's something complicated, no one says, you just sort of agreed by nodding your head at some point or something. You have to find out what it is that's actually in the contract. What is it actually that you are agreeing to? It's not clear if no one knows what exactly the details of the contract are, it's not that pervasive. Okay, well, most of the arguments I'm going to talk about are pragmatic or a mixture of moral and pragmatic. Hobbes, government is necessary for cooperation. Probably the most famous argument against anarchy is Hobbes. Hobbes's argument is, well, Look, human cooperation, social cooperation, requires a structure of law in the background. The reason we can trust each other to cooperate is because we know that there are legal forces that will punish us if we violate each other's rights. I know that they'll punish me if I violate your rights, but they'll also punish you if you violate mine. And so I can trust you because I don't have to rely on your own personal character. I just have to rely on the fact that you'll be intimidated enough by the law.
so social cooperation requires this legal framework backed up by the force of the state. Well, Hobbes is assuming several things at once here. First, he's assuming that there can't be any social cooperation without law. Second, he's assuming that there can't be any laws unless it's enforced by physical violence. And third, he's assuming you can't have any law enforced by physical force unless it's done by a monopolistic state. But all those assumptions are clearly false. It's certainly true that cooperation can and does emerge, maybe not as efficiently as it would with law, but without law. There's Robert Ellick's book, Order Without Law, where he talks about how neighbors manage to resolve disputes. He offers all of the examples about what happens if one farmer's cow wanders onto another farmer's territory and they solve it through some mutual customary agreements and so forth. And there's no legal framework for resolving it. Maybe that's not enough for a complex economy, but it certainly shows that you can have some kind of cooperation without any actual legal framework. Second, you can have a legal framework that isn't backed up by force. An example would be the law merchant in the late Middle Ages, a system of commercial law that was backed up by threats of boycott. Boycott isn't an act of force, but still, you've got merchants making all these contracts, and if you don't abide by the contract, then the court just publicizes it to everyone. This person didn't abide by the contract, take that into account if you're going to make another contract with them. And third, you can have formal legal systems that do use force that are not monopolistic. Since Hobbes doesn't even consider that possibility, he doesn't really give an argument against it. But you can certainly see examples in history. The history of medieval Iceland, for example, where there was no one center of enforcement. Although there was something that you might perhaps call a government, it had no executive arm at all. It had no police, no soldiers, no nothing. It had a sort of competitive court system, but then enforcement was just up to whoever, and there were systems that evolved for taking care of that. Locke, Three Inconveniences of Anarchy Okay, well, more interesting arguments are from Locke. Locke argues that anarchy involves three things he calls inconveniences. And inconvenience has somewhat more weighty sound in the 17th century English than it does in modern English. But still, his point in calling it inconveniences, which still is a bit weaker, was that Locke thought social cooperation could exist somewhat under anarchy. He was more optimistic than Hobbes was. He thought on the basis of moral sympathies, on the one hand and self-interest on the other, cooperations could emerge. He thought there were three problems. One problem, he said, was that there wouldn't be a general body of law that was generally known and agreed on and understood. People could grasp certain basic principles of the law of nature, but their applications and precise detail were always going to be controversial. Even libertarians don't agree. They can agree on the general things, but were always arguing with each other about various points of fine detail.
So even in a society of peaceful, cooperative libertarians, there are going to be disagreements about the details. So, unless there's some general body of law that everyone knows about so that they can know what they can count on being able to do and what not, it's not going to work. So that was Locke's first argument. There has to be some generally known universal body of law that applies to everyone that everyone knows about ahead of time. Second, there is a power of enforcement problem. He thought that without a government, you don't have sufficiently unified power to enforce. You just have individuals enforcing things on their own, and they're just too weak and not organized enough. They could be overrun by a gang of bandits or something. Third, Locke said the problem is that people can't be trusted to be judges in their own case. If two people have a disagreement and one of them says, well, I know what the law of nature is and I'm going to enforce it on you, people tend to be biased and they're going to find the most plausible interpretation of the law of nature that favors their own case. So he thought that you can't trust people to be judges in their own case, therefore, they should be morally required to submit their disputes to an arbitrator. Maybe in cases of emergency, they can still defend themselves on the spot, but for other cases where it's not a matter of immediate self-defense, they need to delegate this to an arbitrator, a third party, and that's the state. So Locke thinks that these are three problems you have under anarchy, and that you wouldn't have them under government or at least under the right kind of government. I think that it's actually the other way around. I think that anarchy can solve all three of those problems and that the state, by its very nature, cannot ever possibly solve them. So let's take the first case of universality, or having a universally known body of law that people can know ahead of time and count on. Now, can that emerge in a non-state system? Well, in fact, it did. It did emerge in the law merchant precisely because the states were not providing it. One of the things that helped to bring about the emergence of the law merchant is the individual states in Europe each had different sets of laws governing merchants. They were all different, and a court in France wouldn't uphold a contract made in England under laws of England and vice versa. So. The merchant's ability to engage in international trade was hampered by the fact that there wasn't any uniform system of commercial law for all of Europe. So the merchants got together and said, well, let's just make one of our own. The courts are coming up with these crazy rules and they're all different and they won't respect each other's decisions, so we'll just ignore them and set up our own. So this is a case in which uniformity and predictability were produced by the market and not by the state. And you can see why that's not so surprising. It's in the interest of those who are providing a private system to make it uniform and predictable if that's what the customers desire. It's for the same reason that you don't find any triangular ATM cards. As far as I know, there's no law saying that you just can't have a triangular ATM card. But if anyone tried to market them, they just wouldn't be very popular because they wouldn't fit into any existing machines. When what people need is diversity, when what people need is different systems for different people, the market provides it. But there are some things where uniformity is better. 
Your ATM card is more valuable to you if everyone else is using the same kind as well or a kind compatible with it so that you can all use the machines wherever you go and therefore the merchants if they want to make a profit they're going to provide uniformity. So the market has an incentive to provide uniformity in a way that government doesn't necessarily. On the question of having sufficient power for organizing for defense, well, there's no reason you can't have organization under anarchy. Anarchy doesn't mean that each person makes their own shoes. The alternative to government providing all the shoes is that not each person makes their own shoes. Likewise, the alternative to government providing all the legal services is not that each person has to be their own independent policeman. There's no reason that they can't organize in various ways. In fact, if you're worried about not having sufficient force to resist an aggressor, a monopoly government is much more of a dangerous aggressor than just some gang of bandits or others because it's unified all its power in just one point in the whole society. I think, more interestingly, the argument about being a judge in your own case really boomerangs against Locke's argument here. Because first of all, it's not a good argument for a monopoly because it's a fallacy to argue from everyone should submit their disputes to a third party to there should be a third party that everyone submits their disputes to. That's like arguing from everyone likes at least one TV show to there's at least one TV show that everyone likes. It just doesn't follow. You can have everyone submitting their disputes to third parties without there being one third party that everyone submits their disputes to. Suppose you've got three people on an island. A and B can submit their disputes to C. A and C can submit their disputes to B. And B and C can submit their disputes to A. So you don't need a monopoly in order to embody this principle that people should submit their disputes to a third party. Moreover, not only do you not need a government, but a government is precisely what doesn't satisfy that principle. Because if you have a dispute with the government, the government doesn't submit that dispute to a third party. If you have a dispute with the government, it'll be settled in a government court. And if you're lucky, if you're unlucky, you live under one of the more rough and ready governments. You won't even get as far as a court. Now, of course, it's better if the government is itself divided, checks and balances and so forth. That's a little bit better. That's closer to there being more parties. But still, they are all part of the same system. The judges are paid by the tax money and so forth. So it's not as though you can't have better and worse approximations to this principle among different kinds of governments. Still, as long as it's a monopoly system by its nature, it's in a certain sense lawless. It never ultimately submits its disputes to a third party. Ayn Rand Private Protection Agencies Will Battle Probably the most popular argument against libertarian anarchy is... Well, what happens if, and this is Ayn Rand's famous argument, I think you violated my rights and you think I haven't, so I call up my protection agency and you call up your protection agency, why won't they just do battle? What guarantees that they won't battle? 
To which, of course, the answer is, well, nothing guarantees they won't do battle. Human beings have free will. They can do all kinds of crazy things. They might go to battle. Likewise, George Bush might decide to push the nuclear button tomorrow. They might do all sorts of things. The question is, actually, what's more likely? What is more likelier to settle its disputes through violence? A government or a private protection agency? The difference is that private protection agencies have to bear the costs of their decisions to go to war. War is expensive. If you have a choice between two protection agencies and one solves its disputes through violence most of the time and the other one solves its disputes through arbitration most of the time, you might think, I want the one that solves its disputes through violence. That sounds cool. But then you look at your monthly premiums and you think, well, how committed are you to this Viking mentality? Now, you might be so committed to the Viking mentality that you're willing to pay for it, but still, it is more expensive. A lot of customers are going to say, I want to go to the one that doesn't charge all of this extra amount for the violence. Governments, however, first of all, they've got captive customers. They can't go anywhere else. But since they're taxing the customers anyway, and the customers don't have the option to switch to a different agency, governments can externalize the cost of going to war much more effectively than private agencies could. Robert Benotto, No Final Arbiter of Disputes One common objection, this is one you find, for example, in Robert Benotto's, who's a Randian who's written a number of articles against anarchy, he and I have a sort of running debate online about this. His principal objection to anarchy is that under anarchy, there's no final arbiter in disputes. Under government, some final arbiter at some point comes along and resolves the dispute one way or the other. Under anarchy, since there's no one agency that has the right to settle all things once and for all, there's no final arbiter. And so disputes, in some sense, basically just never end. They never get resolved and they always remain open-ended. So what's the answer to that? Well, I think there's some ambiguity to the concept of the final arbiter. By final arbiter, you could mean the final arbiter in what I call the platonic sense. That is to say, someone or something or some institution that somehow absolutely guarantees that the dispute is resolved forever. That absolutely guarantees the resolution. Or instead by final arbiter, you could simply mean some person or process or institution or something or other that more or less reliably guarantees most of the time that these problems get resolved. Now it is true that in the platonic sense of an absolute guarantee of a final arbiter, in that sense, anarchy does not provide one, but neither does any other system. Take a minarchist constitutional republic of the sort that Benodo favors. Is there a final arbiter under that system in the sense of something that absolutely guarantees ending the process of dispute forever? Well, I sue you, or I have been sued or I am being accused of something, whatever, I'm in some kind of court case. I lose it. I appeal. I appeal it to the Supreme Court. They go against me. I lobby the Congress to change the laws to favor me. They don't do it. So then I try to get a movement for the constitutional amendment going. 
That fails. So I tried to get people together to vote in new people in Congress who will vote for it. In some sense, it can go on forever. The dispute isn't over. But as a matter of fact, most of the time, legal disputes eventually end. Someone finds it is too costly to continue fighting. Likewise, under anarchy, of course, there's no guarantee that the conflict will not go on forever. There are very few guarantees of that ironclad sort. But that's no reason not to expect it to at least work. Property law cannot emerge from the market. Another popular argument, also often used by the Randians, is that market exchanges presuppose a background of property law. You and I can't be making exchanges of goods and services or money for services or whatever unless there's already a stable background of property law that ensures us the property titles that we have. And because the market, in order to function, presupposes existing background property law. Therefore, that property law itself cannot be a product of the free market. The property law must emerge that must really think it must emerge out of an infallible robot or something. But I don't know what exactly it emerges from, but somehow it can't emerge from the market. But they're thinking this is sort of like this. First, there's this property law and it's all put in place and no market transactions are happening. Everyone is just sort of waiting for the whole legal structure to be put in place and then it's in place and now we can finally start trading back and forth. It certainly is true that you can't have functioning markets without a functioning legal system. That's true. But it's not as though first the legal system is in place and then on the last day they finally finish putting together the legal system then people begin trading. These things arise simultaneously. Legal institutions and economic trade arise together in one and at the same place at one and the same time. The legal system is not something independent of the activity it constrains. After all, a legal system again is not a robot or a god or something separate from us. The existence of a legal system consists in people obeying it. If everyone ignored the legal system, it would have no power at all. So it's only because people generally go along with it that it survives. The legal system too depends upon voluntary support. I think that a lot of people, one reason that they're scared of anarchy is they think that under government, it's as if there's just some kind of guarantee that's taken away under anarchy. That somehow there's this firm background we can always fall back on that under anarchy is just poof, it's gone. But the firm background is just the product of people interacting with the incentives that they have. Likewise, when anarchists say people under anarchy would probably have the incentive to do this or that, and people say, well, that's just not good enough. I don't, I, uh, I just, I just don't want it to be likely that they'll have the incentive to do this. I just want the government to absolutely guarantee that they will. But the government is just people. And depending on what constitutional structure of that government is, it's likely that they'll do this or that. You can't design a constitution that will guarantee that people in the government will behave in any particular way. 
You can structure it in such a way so that they're more likely to do this and less likely to do that. And you can see anarchy is just an extension of checks and balances to a broader level. For example, people say, what guarantees that the differences in agencies will resolve things in a particular way? Well, the U.S. Constitution says nothing about what happens if different branches of government disagree about how to resolve things. It doesn't say what happens if the Supreme Court thinks something is unconstitutional, but Congress thinks that it doesn't and wants to go ahead and do it anyway. Famously, it doesn't say what happens if there's a dispute between the states and the federal government. The current system, where once the Supreme Court declares something unconstitutional and the Congress and the President don't try to do it anymore, or at least not so much, that didn't even exist. Even remembering when the court declared what Andrew Jackson was doing was unconstitutional when he was President, he just said, well, they've made their decision, let them enforce it. The Constitution doesn't say whether the way Jackson did it was the right way. The way we do it now is the way that's emerged through custom. Maybe you're for it, maybe you're against it. Whatever it is, it was never codified in law. Organized crime will take over. One objection is that under anarchy, organized crime will take over. Well, it might, but is it likely? Organized crime gets its power because it specializes in things that are illegal. Things like drugs, prostitution, and so forth. During the years when alcohol was prohibited, organized crime specialized in the alcohol trade. Nowadays, they're not so big in the alcohol trade. So the power of organized crime, to a large extent, depends on the power of government. It's sort of a parasite on government's activities. Governments, by banning things, create black markets. Black markets are dangerous to be in because you have to worry about both the government and about dodgy people who are going into the black market field. Organized crime specializes in that. So organized crime, I think, would be weaker, not stronger, in a libertarian system. The rich will rule. Another worry is that the rich would rule. After all, won't justice just go to the highest bidder in that case? If you turn legal services into an economic good, that's a common objection. Interestingly, it's a particular common objection among Randians, who suddenly become very concerned about the poor, impoverished masses. But under which system are the rich more powerful? Under the current system or under anarchy? Certainly, you've always got some sort of advantage if you're rich. It's good to be rich. You're always in a better position to bribe people if you're rich than if you're not. That is true. But under the current system, the power of the rich is magnified. Suppose that I'm an evil rich person and I don't want the government to do something or other that costs a million dollars. Do I have to bribe some bureaucrat a million dollars to get it done? No, because I'm not asking him to do it with his own money. Obviously, if I were asking him to do it with his own money, I could get him to spend a million dollars by bribing him any less than a million. It would have to be at least a million dollars and one cent. 
but people who control tax money that they don't themselves personally own and therefore can't do whatever they want with, the bureaucrat can't just pocket the million and go home, although it can get surprisingly close to that. All I have to do is bribe him a few thousand and he can direct this million dollars in tax money to my favorite project or whatever, and thus the power of my bribe money is actually multiplied in this scenario. Where heirs, if you were the head of some private protection agency and I'm trying to get you to do something that costs a million dollars, I'd have to bribe you more than a million. So the power of the rich is actually less under this system. And of course, any court that got the reputation of discriminating in favor of millionaires against poor people would also presumably have the reputation of discriminating for billionaires against the millionaires. So the millionaires would not want to deal with it all of the time. They'd only want to deal with it when they're dealing with the people poorer than they. This reputation affects. I don't think this would be too popular of an outfit. Worries about poor victims who can't afford legal services or victims who die without heirs. Again, the Randians are very worried about victims dying without heirs. In the case of poor victims, you can do what they did in medieval Iceland. You're too poor to purchase legal services, but still, if someone has harmed you, you have a claim to compensation from that person. You can sell that claim, part of the claim, or even all of it to someone else. Actually, it's kind of like hiring a lawyer on a contingency fee basis. You can sell to someone who is in the position to enforce your claim. Or, if you die without heirs, in a sense, one of the goods you left behind was your claim to compensation, and that can be homesteaded. The masses will demand bad laws. Another worry that Bonotto has, and this sort of the opposite of the worry that the rich will rule, is, well, look, is it Mises right that the market is like one big democracy, where there is consumer sovereignty and the masses just get whatever they want? That's great when it's refrigerators and cars and so forth, but surely that's not a good thing when it's laws, right? Because after all, the masses are a bunch of ignorant, intolerant fools, and if they just get whatever laws they want, who knows what horrible things that they will make. Of course, the difference between economic democracy of the Mises sort and political democracy is, well, yeah, they get whatever they want, but they're going to have to pay for it. Now it's certainly and most perfectly true that if you have people who are fanatical enough about wanting to impose some wretched thing on other people, if you've got a large enough group of people who are fanatical enough about this, then anarchy might not lead to libertarian results. If you live in California, you've got enough people who are absolutely fanatical about banning smoking. Or maybe if you're in Alabama and it's homosexuality instead of smoking that they want to ban. Neither one would ban the other, I think. In that case, it might happen that they're so fanatical about it that they would ban it. But remember that they are going to have to be paying for this. So when you get your monthly premium, you see, well, here's your basic service. Protecting you against aggression. Oh, and then here's your extended services.
Oh, the extra fee for that. Peering in your neighbor's windows to make sure that they're not either the tobacco or the homosexuality or whatever it is you're worried about. Now, the really fanatic people will say, yes, I'm going to shell out the extra money for this. Of course, if they're that fanatical, they're probably going to be trouble under minarchy too. But if they're not that fanatical, they'll say, well, if all I have to do is go to the voting booth and vote for these laws restricting other people's freedoms, well, heck, I'd go in. It's pretty easy to go in and vote for it. But if they actually have to pay for it, gee, I don't know, maybe I can reconcile myself to this. Robert Nozick and Tyler Cohen Private protection agencies will become a de facto government. Okay, one last consideration I want to talk about. This is a question that was originally raised by Robert Nozick and has since been pushed farther by Tyler Cohen. Nozick said, suppose you have anarchy. One of three things will happen. Either the agencies will fight, and he gives two different scenarios of what will happen if they fight. But I've already talked about that happening already prior, so I'll talk about the third option. What if they don't fight? Then he says, if instead they agree to these mutual arbitration contracts and so forth, then basically this whole thing just turns into some other form of government. And then Tyler Cohen has pushed this argument further. He said that what happens is that basically this forms into a cartel, and it's going to be in the interest of this cartel to sort of turn itself into a government, and any new agency that comes along, they can just boycott it. Just as it's in your interest if you come along with a new ATM card that it should be compatible with everyone else's machines, so if you come along with the brand new protection agency, it is in your interest that you get to be a part of this system of contracts and arbitration and so forth that exists similarly to the others. Consumers aren't going to come to you if they find out that you don't have any agreements as to what happens if you're in conflict with those other agencies. And so this cartel will be able to freeze everyone out. Well, could that happen? Sure. All kinds of things could happen. Half the country could commit suicide tomorrow, but is it likely? Is this cartel likely to be able to abuse its power in this way? The problem is cartels are unstable for all the usual reasons. That doesn't mean that it's impossible that a cartel succeeds. After all, people have free will. But it's unlikely because the very incentives that lead you to form the cartel also lead you to cheat on it because it's always in the interest of anyone to make agreements outside of the cartel once they are in it. Brian Kaplan makes a distinction between self-enforcing boycotts and non-self-enforcing boycotts. Self-enforcing boycotts are ones where the boycott is pretty stable because it's a boycott against, for example, doing business with people who cheat on their business partners. Now, you don't have to have some iron resolve of morale commitment in order to avoid doing business with people who cheat on their business partners. You have a perfectly self-interested reason to not do business with these people. But think instead of a commitment not to do business with someone because you don't like their religion or some other arbitrary metric like this. 
or they're a member of the wrong protection agency, one that your fellow protection agencies told you not to deal with. Well, the boycott might work. Maybe enough people and maybe everyone in the cartel is so committed to upholding the cartel that they just won't deal with the person. Is that possible? Well, quite yes, it probably is possible. But if we assume that they form the cartel out of their own economic self-interest, then the economic self-interest is precisely what leads to the undermining because it is in their interest to deal with the person just as it's always in your interest to engage in a mutually beneficial trade. And that's the end of the article. And now what is going to follow is actually, it seems like this was uh, a presentation of some sorts because it actually has a questioning period where people from the audience who watched the presentation that followed um, asked the, the uh, author questions about um, concerns or things that he probably didn't hit upon. So I think that's relevant. So I'm going to read those as well. So let's follow along. Anyway, those are some of the objections and some of my replies, and I'll open it up to questions. Question 1. My chief concern about anarchism is, why can't you say that government is just another division of labor? Because it could be that some people are better or possess natural capabilities that are more suited to ruling over others. I'm not saying that anarchy can't work, but solely from empirical evidence, the fact that none of the industrialized regions in the world are in a state of anarchy, nor have they ever been for long in a state of anarchy, says something about perhaps the stability or even the viability of complex human societies in the present state. Also, going back to what I said earlier, you can conceive of the relationship between the ruler and the ruled as just another common division of labor. Some people possess leadership abilities that are better able to organize people than others. Some other people just lack this trait. Robert responds. On the division of labor point, to the extent the division of labor is voluntary, if you're better at doing something or other than I am, and so you do it, and then I buy the service from you, as long as it's voluntary, that's fine. But when we're talking about division of labor, and some people are better at ruling than other people, well, if I consent to your ruling me, maybe I'm hiring you as my advisor because I think you're better at making decisions than I am. So I make one last decision, which is to hire you as my advisor, and from then on, I do what you say. That is not government. You're my employee. You're an employee that I follow very religiously. But ruling implies ruling people without their consent. That the division of labor is beneficial to everyone involved doesn't seem to apply in cases where one group is forcing the other to accept its services. And on the question of why we don't see any industrialized country that has anarchy, of course, we also don't see any industrialized country that has a monarchy. But then, industrialized countries haven't been around all that long. There was a time when people said every civilized country, or just about every civilized country, is going to be a monarchy. You find people in the 17th and 18th centuries saying, look, 
all the civilized countries are monarchies. Democracy could never work. And by saying democracy would never work, they meant not just that it would have these various bad results in the long run. They just thought it would completely fall apart into chaos in a matter of months. Whatever you may think of democracy, it was more viable than they predicted. It could last longer at any rate than they predicted. So things are in flux. There was a time when it was all monarchies. Now it's all semi-oligarchical democracies. The night is young. Question 2. Roderick, surely we all appreciate the wonderful work you do here at the Mises Institute. But Ludwig von Mises wasn't an anarchist, so I was wondering if you could tell us more about your institute and the Molinari Institute. Robert responds, Mises wasn't really a Miesian. Ha! Well, I have my own think tank. It is somewhat smaller than this one. I am not sure whether it has a physical size. It does consist of more than one person. The board of directors is three people. So it's three people plus a website. Someday it will rule the earth in an anarchic way, obviously. Right now, mostly what it does is put up various libertarian and anarchist classics on the website. There's an offshoot of it, the Molinarian Society, which is the same three people plus one more, insofar as Hayek said, social facts consist in people's attitudes towards them. The more people who think that it exists, the more it exists. The whole thing exists a little bit more because we got affiliated with the American Philosophical Association. The Molinari Society is hosting a session at the American Philosophical Association meetings in December. So it is actually going to be a Molinari event in December involving the three people plus one. So that's the grand and glorious progress. Its mission is to overthrow the government. We've applied for our tax-exempt status from the government. We'll just see just how dumb they really are. We worded the description somewhat differently when we sent in the forms. Question 3. I'm going to bolster the point that you made about the Randian objection that market transactions require some sort of legal background to them. The fact that there are black markets belies this. If you are a cocaine dealer and you get ripped off by your middleman, you certainly can't go to court and say, go arrest him. He didn't give me the cocaine he was supposed to. Robert responds, I bet someone's tried it. Continuation of question three. Now, of course, this very easily can lead to violence, but don't forget that there are people actively trying to stop you. Not just that. They're not letting you arbitrate. They're actively stopping you from doing it. Robert responds, David Friedman makes an argument that one of the main functions of the mafia is to serve as something like a court system for criminals. That's not all it does. But the mafia takes an interest in what sorts of criminal goings on are going on within its territory because it wants its cut. But it also doesn't want gangs having shootouts with each other in its territory. If you've got a conflict, you agreed to some kind of criminal deal with someone and they cheated on you. And it happened in the jurisdiction of some particular mafia group. They'll take an interest in that so long as you're providing your cut. 
if they're not cooperating, the mafia will act as something kind of like courts and police-like. They're sort of cops for criminals. Question 4. What will prevent protection companies from becoming a protection racket? Robert's response. Well, basically, other protection companies. If it succeeds in doing it, then it's become a government. But during the time it's trying to do it, it hasn't become government, so we assume that there will still be other agencies around. And it's in those other agencies' interest to make sure that this doesn't happen. Could it become a protection racket? In principle, could protection agencies evolve into government? Possibly, some could. I think probably historically some have. But the question is, is that a likely or inevitable result? I don't think so because there is a check and balance against it. Checks and balances can fail in anarchy just like they can fail under constitutions. But there is a check and balance against it, which is the possibility of calling in other protection agencies or someone starting another protection agency before this thing has yet had a chance to acquire that kind of power. Question 5. Who best explains the origin of the state? Robert responds, Well, there's a popular 19th century theory of the origin of the state that you find in a number of different forms. It's in Herbert Spencer's, it's in Oppenheimer, you find it in some of the French liberals like Camante and Donier and Molinari, who wasn't really French, he was Belgian. I am not a Frenchie, I'm a Belgie. This theory, they had different versions of it, but it's all pretty similar. Was that what happens is that one group conquers another group. Often the theory was that a sort of hunter-marauder group conquers an agricultural group. In Molinari's version of it, what happens is, first they just go and kill people and grab their stuff, and then they gradually they figure it out. Well, maybe we should wait and not kill them because we want them to grow more stuff next time we come back. So instead, we'll just come and grab their stuff and just not kill them this time. And then they'll just grow more stuff, and next year we'll be back. And then they think, well, if we take their stuff, then they won't have enough seed corn to grow it. Or they wouldn't have any incentive to grow it. They'll just run away or something. So let's just not try to take everything. Maybe, and finally, they think we don't have to keep going away and coming back. We can just move in. And then gradually, over time, you get a ruling class and a ruled class. At first, the ruling class and the ruled class may be ethically different because these were different tribes. But even if, over time, the tribes intermarry and there's no longer a difference in the compositions, they still have got the same structure of a ruling group and a ruled group. So that was one popular theory of the origin of the state, or at least the origin of many states. I think another origin you can see of some states or state-like things is in the same sort of situation, but in cases where they succeeded in fending off the invaders, some local group within the invaded group says, we're going to specialize in defense. We're going to specialize in defense for the rest of you guys against these invaders. And they succeeded. If you look at the history of England, I think this is what happens with the English monarchy. Before the Norman conquest and the earliest French monarchs were war leaders whose main job was basically just national defense. They had very little to do within the country. They were primarily directed against foreign invaders, but it was a monopoly. Now the question is, how they got that monopoly, I'm not so sure, but once they got it, 
they gradually started getting involved more and more in domestic control as well. Question 6. Hector, Murray's story about Hector? It's very similar to the story, and it's on the web, and it's just a beautiful story. Robert responds, which story about Hector is this? Questionnaire continues, the first one about why do we have to leave? Let's just stay here. Robert responds, oh yes. Question six continues, Murray did a beautiful job on that, and I would recommend it. Robert responds, what's that in? Question continues, it's on LeeRockwell.com. Robert responds, it's on... Or is it, it's one of the Rothbard articles on there? Okay, question six. I wanted to butteress your thesis in several ways. One, another argument in favor of anarchy is that if you really favor the government, you have to be in favor of a world government because right now there's anarchy between governments and we can't have that if you want government. Very few people favor world government and it's incompatible with the case against anarchy. Robert responds, there has to be a final, final arbiter. Questionee returns. Another butteress is the issue about negotiations. The way that the time zones came up and the way that the standard gauge for railroads came up was through negotiations between railroad companies. Robert responds, and the internet. Some of that is legal, but other aspects are just customary. Questionnaire 6 continues. And another support is this thing about the cartel. At one time, the National Basketball Association had eight teams, and they wouldn't allow any other people to come in. So they started the ABA, the American Basketball Association, with the red and white blue ball. So if you had this cartel that wouldn't let other people in, they could start another cartel. Robert responds, what happened to them? Questionnaire six answers. They eventually merged. Now there are like 30 teams in the NBA, and if that's too few, yet another league can come up. Robert responds. The crucial point is that in the Austrian definition of competition, it's not number of competing firms, it's the free entry. As long as it's possible to start another one that can have the same effect as actually doing it. Questionnaire six continues. In addition to the dissolution of the cartel, you can have other cartels competing against the first cartel. Robert responds, Did the XFL, or the Extreme Football League, have any good effect? Haha. <laughs> question 6 continues, I wanted to ask a question in your answer to the first question where you side, you were appointing him as your guide. Does this mean you take my side? Robert responds, No. Question six. What about on alienability? Robert responds again. No, no. That's why I said he was an employee rather than the owner. I believe in inalienable rights. Question six continues. He's an employee, yet you can't fire him. Robert responds. No, I can fire him. He's my advisor. I will always follow him, but I haven't given up my right to fire him. And that is the end of the article. Or I should say the end of the questionnaire session for after the presentation concluded. I have a little bit of a list here, some things that I thought was important. When he was talking about, in the beginning of the article, he was talking about... Um, oh, shoot, I went too far. 
he says social cooperation is the point right um let's see da -da 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 -da. protecting rights moral territory once again seems like path customer base charge high prices they might be occasional abuse of power if you manage saintly types blah 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 mix of services so the purpose and considerations approve competition blah 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 nope that's not it uh where the hell did it go i wrote the note down here about that wanted to make a point about it but i can't remember what the point i was going to make about the human cooperation the social cooperation is human action I know that's the point I wanted to make. Oh, here we go. Here we go. The the guy going into the restaurant ordering a steak. Like, the social cooperation between the individuals is the presupposed position of if I'm going into your place of business and I'm placing an order for food, there's a social cooperation between the two of us in which when i place the order we're explicitly entering a social contract of sorts that when i'm done eating my food and i find it satisfactory to my liking that i'm going to actually pay you the money for the food um so the idea of there's individuals who argue for well if you live here in said jurisdiction geographical jurisdiction you're basically agreeing to the the social contract of uh, said area. Like, how can I know what the social contract is? Like, there isn't any explicit foundational rule outside of, well, we're just here and they say that they own everything and if I work within this area, they have to take money from me. But like, okay, that might be what everybody knows but we only know that because that's been going on for ever like there's no actual known set of arbitrary rules here you know that we need that universality of when i leave the united states and go to europe or go to china or go to russia i don't there's no way of me knowing that when i go there that there's like this explicit set of universal rules that we can all agree upon but if I go to a restaurant in China, I can expect to know that there's going to be a rule that if I go into a restaurant and order food, that I'm going to be expected to pay for it after I consume the food. Like, the difference between the government's rules of when I enter their jurisdiction and I live in their jurisdiction, there's no universal way of knowing the differentiations between the laws. Like, you can just cross borders and places and just the United States alone and you know something is legal in one state and then you go across the, the, the borderline 30 feet away and cross it and then it's legal over there and not legal over here like none of that makes any sense there's no complicit universality of the rules within the system that requires and even makes it legitimate by any means because you can't it's not pragmatic in any way shape or form but when you actually kind of break it down that way of saying like oh you're in my house put on the stupid hat but if you're not going to be in my house i'm going to go to your house and make you put on the stupid hat because you move next to me and you know you just kind of sort of agreed to the rules of putting on the stupid hat because you move next to me just shows the absurdity of the argument altogether um then there's the habesian the government is necessary for cooperation but 
I think sometimes we kind of forget that we don't need the government there to force a social cooperation. The social cooperation is kind of enforced on its own just due to basic human economic need because we all desire to have ends. Human action is action with purpose. We action, we, we, we do something because we value what we're doing more than doing something else. That whatever it is we're doing is going to procure a value of some sort to us that we deem necessary and relevant to our immediate satisfaction of the ends that we're trying to accrue. And he is assuming that because government is there, when we meet each other within the social strata of just walking down the street, that we cannot have there's not a social agreement between the two of us that the other one should stay alive. But there is, right? Because individually, we as individuals value our life enough to know that I want to live another day. I value my life enough to know that you want to live another day. So therefore, it's in both of our best interests that I don't stab you in the neck when I walk down the street. But there are people who actually believe that the only thing stopping me from stabbing you in the neck on the middle of the street is because there's some omnipotent government entity that's going to put me in jail if I do do that. But like, okay, we live in a society where that is the norm of government existing with these rules and yet the stabbing of people in the neck randomly down the street still actually occurs. So... Which is it, people? Let's make sure that we're on the same basis here. Let's please be consistent. Either it happens in an anarchic society or it happens in a democratic society with laws that force people to go to jail for stabbing other people in the neck. Because uh, guess what? Even in an anarchy society, nothing is actually going to stop that from happening except for you, the individual. Because why you are responsible for your own responsibility or you're going to pay somebody else to be responsible for it. Period. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Um, the next one, the government monopoly. When we have a government that has a monopoly, uh, government monopoly just basically becomes the biggest gain. In the long run, government monopoly, government itself is the biggest gain that's out there. People try to say that we need government to stop gangs from taking over, but yet what ends up happening? Government just becomes the gang that we all fear and wish didn't exist. But yet we live with it like it's no big deal and that it should be normalized that everybody has to adhere to the big gang. None of that makes any sense. Um, I also liked um, his takedown of Locke's Three Inconveniences of Anarchy um, because it says markets create uniformity where needed, but it also creates the, di the diversity when needed. So let's take into consideration uh, movies. Movies is a great example. Do you see only one type of movie being created? No. The market has created a diverse, wide range of topics of things that can be considered movie-worthy. You can create a movie about anything. But what did the market create uniformity on within movies? The medium in which you consume the product. 
DVDs, Blu-ray di Blu discs, to now we have moved away from the physical form of those medias to the streaming form of those medias. The way we consume those medias has become largely uniform in society as it is today. But the diversity is on the fringes of that media. The diversity is in the media itself. The actual way that we can procure and consume that is the uniformity. If we want to make movies, we want to make movies that everybody can have access to. Therefore, we should create a uniform way for everyone to be able to consume this content or the content's not going to get seen. If you're just some indie developer who creates a movie and doesn't distribute it and creates some new way of viewing movies that nobody else has access to, I'm sorry. Nobody's going to fucking watch your movie regardless of how fucking good it is. Because you're not creating it or releasing it in a way that everybody has access to. There's no uniformity there. So I like that delineation that the market can create uniformity where it's needed and at the same time create the diversity where it's also needed. That the market can make these decisions without some top-down decree of government deciding that this is what the uniformity should be or this is where the diversity should be. That I thought was a very good point. Um, oh, here's another one. Even all libertarians don't agree. Like, duh. The, the, I, I don't know if you've ever met somebody else who kind of believes in free markets or just the freedom and individuality of sovereignty. We can disagree about tons of shit within that strata of philosophical thought. But what we can agree on is the fundamental basis of every person should own themselves and own the responsibility of their actions and the respecting of other people's property. That's basically the, the couple things that pretty much anybody who is has any form of liberty mind basically can agree upon that. So the simple rules of just those simple rules we can create the complex society on top of those comp the simple rules that we have because we can all come to an agreement upon that. But as you can see, as libertarians or anarcho-capitalisms or anarchists or minarchists, or you can continue on this entire umbrella of just freedom, liberty, sovereignty as a whole has so many different factions of different variants of individuals who have – just varying disagreements on the way that they think certain parts of freedom should or should not be. And the simple rules, I think that most people could live together in those societies if we could create a way of those simple rules making the complex society that we want. Because what do you see now? What kind of society do we have now? We have a society with so many complex rules that we just have just dumbass people who just live because there's no direction. There's no simple understanding. There's no uniformity in the laws that go everywhere that nobody knows what the fuck they're doing. It's like there's so many different, you know, traffic cops every di different direction everywhere you go telling you what you can and can't do that nobody can, nobody's, nobody wants to act. 
Nobody wants to take responsibility for what they're doing because somebody else is telling them what to do. So it's that other person's fault that I did this because they told me that this was the way I had to do it instead of them just creating simple uniform rules that everybody can abide by that's only simple. Doesn't have this huge overarching, you know, fucking 20 billion pages of nonsense of the what you should and shouldn't do. And then what was the next one I thought was really good? Um... Okay, here we go. If more things were legally or yeah, if more things were legal, so just take it in a bucket of anything that's considered quote unquote that is illegal. If we actually legalize more things, organized crime would have a less of a profit motive for that business model. So, if we took away uh mafia or crime gangs or just anybody trying to do the nefarious things and basically eliminated the ability for the black market to actually profit by allowing everybody to do what it is that they wanted and deal in the goods and services that they wanted. Crime is very expensive. It is very expensive to attack people. It is very expensive to just go around and just destroy shit. Like if we didn't have a black market for these guys to sell things at a premium in which only they are the ones that can offer it because they have a monopoly on the sale of these goods because nobody actually wants to deal in the sale of these goods because it is quote-unquote illegal would that not be a way that would defund them and not have them have the vast amounts of capital to deploy to have the weapons and things that they do that would stop terrorizing society i think so and i like this uh i didn't even know this was a thing in the medieval iceland or was it yeah medieval iceland i think it was that they said yeah that it was talking about that when you died everybody was well aware that when you died and somebody else had killed you that i i would assume that maybe you know i should maybe look this up i would assume that if somebody else had saw your death and saw that you had wrongfully committed murder to that person, that they had a rightful claim to the compensation that you, the individual, or your heirs actually procured and actually created this incentive structure for them to actually bring you to justice in order to um, get the claim of that wrongdoing you did to that other person from you so that they could get it to their heirs but they're actually going to take a cut for being the one to actually enforce that claim that definitely sounded like something to me that was very unique i have never heard about that before so i thought that was very a very cool thing if we could create some type of social structure that if another individual saw the crime and had a financial incentive to bring you to justice because there's something in it for them I think that that would largely get rid of the the whole believed or perceived belief for police to exist because we as individuals would actually police ourselves because there's a financial profit in policing ourselves. So let's see. The next one I have here is... Uh, oh, so the financial costs to imposing absurd laws. In a society in which individuals actually have to bear the costs of creating, like, 
take California example. We're supposed to be gas car free by 2030. All cars in California are only going to be electric sales. That's it. No exceptions. Like, there's no financial cost to imposing that law onto automakers and the general public at all, whatsoever. Why? Because government just taxes every single individual, whatever they want and whatever they deem that they need for the sake of enforcing this law. Because this law is going to cost people lots and lots of money. Electric cars aren't profitable without government subsidies. Fixing electric cars is even more expensive, requires more resources to create electric cars than carbon or uh, internal combustion engines. The infrastructure that's actually required for electric cars is not in place. So there's loads of financial burden that go with this law, but because they don't actually impose the costs onto the actual people who it affects, they're able to do this kind of crazy wild shit that nobody would agree to if every month they got a bill that said electric car imposement tax, here is the amount that you owe individually. If that was the case, everybody would change their tune about whatever it is that they didn't give a fuck about. It would actually show how many people actually do care about trying to save the planet and trying to enforce everybody to use electric vehicles or homosexuality or smoking weed or shooting up dope or you can put any arbitrary societal uh, problem quote unquote into this section and if people aren't willing to pay for it it's not going to be a law it's not going to be imposed upon other people the reason why the law books are so goddamn thick is because governments do not have the financial burden placed upon them for imposing these laws. They just create the laws and because that's what the social majority of people want and that's going to get me the most votes and looky what I did for you guys, you poor slaves. Look what I did. I did this. So that got me the most votes and costs be damned. So I definitely like this one. This was definitely cool. I like that there was the Q&A system afterwards. And I hope you guys enjoyed it. Um, those were some of the key things and some of the new things that I hadn't talked about or heard about that I thought was very important. But uh, let me know what you guys think. Until next time, guys.